Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Oil pricing, uh, I don't have much in the way of of observations on oil, except that the backwardation, in other words, what you, you pay 110 for a current barrel and in three or four years time, it's like $70. At $40 backwardation means that you can't really hedge. So you can't really have debt. So please, 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 any oil equities you own, make sure they don't have any debt. That's just impossible with that amount of backwardation. But EOG doesn't have any debt. Magnolia doesn't have any debt. Pioneer doesn't have any debt. And some of the others, Devon, are on their way to not having any debt. On natural gas, it's almost the same. The natural gas price is very high now, especially considering that it's a shoulder month between winter pricing and summer pricing. You know, again, three or four years' time, the price of natural gas is $4 as compared to $8 currently or eight eight and a half currently. So once again, most of the natural gas producers are Marcellus, although some of the Marcellus companies have acquired Louisiana, Haynesville producers. Southwestern, you know, has debt and they have lots of hedging, but, you know, the stocks behave reasonably well. And Terra, another company that uh, we own interest in, has performed very well, but they've sworn off hedging. Their debt is lower. EQT's been a pretty good performer. They have a fair amount of debt like Southwestern, but I'm not quite sure what their hedging strategy is. Chesapeake looks cheap. They, when I line these things up, they have the benefit of having gone through bankruptcy. They, they zeroed out all their common equity, but they don't have too much debt. So that, that's one that looks cheap. Capital market situation, the Fed is really in a horrible place, I think, because they should have started reducing their balance sheet this time last year. They didn't. Believe it or not, they were still adding to their balance sheet January, February. I mean, it's just with the benefit of hindsight, it's just deplorable. All the emphasis is on what the Fed funds rate is going to be. And, you know, I, I think, who cares, really? Will they be able to get their balance sheet almost $9 trillion? Most of these ones, they called up and saying $8 trillion, and then I realized it was closer to 9 than 8 They have to get it back down to $4 trillion. The runoff will be about 100 billion a month or about a billion to a year. What I'm worried about now is that there was no GNP growth. There was actually one and a half percent decline in real GNP in the first quarter. You've seen the target announcements and the SNAP announcements and whatnot. I mean, it looks like the consumer, which is 70% of the economy, has just dug their heels in and are not, you know, not, not making, purchasing anything, you know, that other than pay five or six dollars for gasoline and pay you know elevated utility bills and so 
it, it's, it's hard to imagine. I'm no economist, but it's hard to imagine they were not going to have negative GNP in the second quarter. Well, theoretically, a recession is two quarters of negative GNP. I would say with a very tight labor market and 3.5% unemployment, you can't really declare the recession if you don't have, if you have such a tight labor market. I was slicing bananas on my cereal this morning. I had Bloomberg on, and the, one of the commentators said, watch the weekly claims. Mike and I, Mike's actually been watching this, and they're up a little bit, but you know, not enough to worry. So we'll just have to see. Now, suppose that the second quarter ending June 30 comes in at like minus two and a half percent or something it's compared to minus, you know, real GNP is compared to minus one and a half in the first quarter. What's the Fed supposed to do? And suppose the unemployment claims start to sneak up and, right, right, you know, they announced the uh, jobs report is uh, once a month. Suppose the jobs report, rather than three or 400,000 jobs, is 100,000 jobs. Suppose they have a jobs report where they actually lose jobs. What's the Fed supposed to do? Stick with the $9 trillion balance sheet? What are they going to do with the next time they have something happen, like uh, COVID? Not not a good situation at all. Uh, I don't know that if they have this negative GMP and they start to see, you know, unemployment claims go up and the unemployment rate starts to climb, not a lot, but if it goes from three, six or whatever it was to four, two or something like that, they're not going to probably have the courage to stick with having the balance sheet on down $100 billion a month. What will happen then? It's not not reasonable, not logical, but we'll have quite a significant equity snapback if that happens, which I, as a long-term investor, I don't know whether you can trust that, but, and I certainly wouldn't buy, you know, your favorite thing you've been watching now because we, we might start to, not, not, not is the recession going to happen, but we're actually in one and have the Fed stop the quantitative tightening. You know, I, I, I don't think that's a very good reason to, you know, commit equity dollars, but but I uh, think that's the situation we face. Just quickly, we promised last Wednesday that we'd look at Tesla, and we have, and we're going to spend some more time on it. Tesla, why are we interested in Tesla? We're interested in Tesla because the work Mike did on CATL and BYD, who are the leaders on um, making batteries, the, the comparable company in in Korea, LG Chem, and the comparable company in, in Japan, Panasonic, those two Chinese companies have just run circles around them. Not only that, but the Chinese have accumulated the ability to, you know, the, all the materials that are needed, the lithium, the cobalt, the nickel, and whatnot. I don't think there's anyone out there who's done a better job figuring out how to get batteries and, 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 and utilize them that figure out the materials and do the engineering Tesla. So that's why from a strategic point of view, having spent time on the ACL and BYD, why we've gotten kind of interest in Tesla. Now Tesla does have free cash flow now. It's a a good way to think about something like this is at what price would you buy the stock? Well let's just pick out of the air four hundred dollars. About a billion shares outstanding. So that's $400 billion. In order to have that match up with other 
things you could invest in, like Apple or Microsoft or Nvidia or Google, you probably would want to see about a 5% free cash yield, which means at $400 billion, because they don't have too much debt. They have, they, they, they do have free cash flow. That means you'd want to see 20 billion of free cash flow, 20 billion being 5% of 400 billion. They're probably on a rate now, looking at their first quarter report of doing, I don't know, maybe 10, you know, so they're within the hailing distance of 20. On the other hand, 400 is a lot less than 50. So I'm going to ask Mike for any additional commentary there, but you know, it's something to watch, not something to act on, but something to watch. It doesn't mean to say that we want to use this down ticket markets to focus on that as compared to Microsoft or Apple or Amazon or, or Google or, or, uh, you know, we kind of stay clear of Facebook, but you know, we're, we're, you know, we're trying to be open-minded on it and not just kind of project it out of hand. Mike, anything to add? I've, I've used all the airwaves here. Well, I think Tesla is a good example of a company that sometimes we dismiss what a company is doing because maybe the news headlines or the CEO seems to be doing things that are crazy in the case of Tesla. And in, again, in hindsight, you realize how forward-thinking that organization is and how well they've done and now if you if you if you look at their their annual report their business is so much broader than a typical automotive maker right an american automaker sells through a dealer system so they sell just to dealers they don't sell direct to consumer these guys sell direct to consumer they they manufacture a lot of their own parts they push the barriers on manufacturing and automation they've they've set up some of the largest agreements for pre-purchasing long-term purchasing contracts for lithium. So when you think about a company that's well positioned for this transition to what we're kind of calling is a metals powered economy, hindsight being 2020, this is, they've certainly done more than anybody else. So I, the lesson here is uh, to do the work and, and read the reports. Don't, don't just listen to the headlines and ignore a company that might be great. The other thing that I'll mention, and it ties into a lot of the things we look at, on, but some of the things we like about NVIDIA, because they power a lot of the data science and artificial intelligence technologies, what they're doing with full self-driving. And again, this is the way that they pitch it, but the technology is generally applicable beyond full self-driving. And they've announced new products that you know, again, this is things where Elon Musk will say, we're going to release this thing in two years. It might not be two years, but it may be four years. They're talking about a robot that would be something that you would buy for your house that would do menial chores and whatnot. So, so that same technology from their full self-driving stack is going to be applied there. So, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating company. What they've accomplished is really amazing. It's of the companies that I track for what we call super compounders, so companies that if you were to buy them in the first year, their average price first year of the IPO and hold them up until now, how well have you would have done with your money? It tops the chart. I, I don't think you want to ignore or underestimate Elon Musk. Yeah. We have more work to do. Please don't, no, don't go out. Well, if you own the stock, don't sell it, I guess, but we've got more work to do and, and we'll assign 
ourselves five or six minutes every Wednesday to, to uh, explain what more we're learning about Tesla. I would say the other one we need to focus on because we just missed it. I mean, I missed it for sure, is Apple. And what is it about Apple that I just, I, I couldn't get comfortable with Apple because so much of their cash flow was coming from selling iPhones. And I frankly thought that, that they, they would be vulnerable there, that people wouldn't bring for a new iPhone. They continue to use their old iPhones. But I'm not sure that's really a, a reasonable a reasonable way to forecast demand for iPhones. Um, I don't see that the iPhone product has any real competition. I mean, they're less expensive phones, but I remember the iPhone, as Mike is fond of telling us about NVIDIA, NVIDIA is not just a hardware company. They come up with the software to go with the hardware. Same thing for AMD. And same thing for, if you're looking at Pat Gelsinger, what he's trying to do is elected savior of Intel. I think that the other concern with Apple, so much of their iPhones and their, their, their iMacs and whatnot are made in China. Interestingly enough, by companies that generally, like Foxconn, are, are uh, Taiwan-based. With the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, you know, some of the concern was, gee, when will China do the same with Taiwan? But I think that China is fundamentally different than Russia. Russia only has 140 million people. China has a billion, 200 million. And China would be much, be much more difficult if they had the same kind of sanctions against them that, that have rolled, have, have been imposed on Russia. So I think the chance of China doing something like trying to take Taiwan with military force is probably brought down given the Russian experience in, in the Ukraine and, and the reaction of, of the European Union and the U.S. and other countries imposing sanctions and, and basically fighting a proxy war by providing all this money and equipment to the Ukrainians. I think that will, you know, has less downside. And then the question becomes, you know, can you get to that 5% free cash yield? And we just have to do some work on that. The other one that I need to somehow come to terms with is Microsoft. I owned it once and I just got tired. This is many, many, many years ago of them making a lot of money from their office products and their Windows products, and then just blowing it on Bing. They long since stopped doing that. They were trying to make up for the fact that Google had, had beaten them so soundly in search. But those are the things I think as investors we need to and try to see what, what combination of price and cash flow characteristics get to the 5% free cash yield. We don't need to leave out Amazon and Google. But with the rest of our time today, I'd like to get into something that 
I really do not under, or I'm having a hard time trying to figure out. Mike and his partner, Jason, have done a pretty darn good job. But the basic question here is how will, well, let's say we have iPhones and, and we're going to have a pretty high portion of all the cars sold, the battery cars. Just let me revert to that for a second. You know, we're trying to identify trends that'll be good for several years or 10 years. Let's think about, and, and I, I, okay, I think we all, as a group, as a consensus, I mean, it's not likely that the iPhone is, is or different models of the iPhone are going to be replaced or that people are going to use their iPhones less or, you know, it's just, it's just established. And we're about to get into how the iPhone or your laptop or whatnot connects to the internet. We'll get to that in a second. Just want to circle back to battery cars for a second because there's a thought that I left out. There are 260 million cars in our economy. Kind of remarkable since there are only 320 million people. There are 120 million households. So if you divide the number of cars by the number of households, you get to two cars per household. I think half of those 120 million households are affluent enough so that when they go to get a replacement car, they're going to go to a battery car. And, and you know, rather than worry about range or where you should charge it up, why not have one gas car and one battery car? Now, that doesn't mean, you know, most households, a lot of households, uh, are going to be using both cars every day. So it's not like you just use the gas car for long trips on the weekend. But the battery car is going to be used a lot. Think of it this way. If we roll ahead four or five years and there are 250 million cars, because I, it, I, I, don't, I don't think we, you know, I don't think we need 260. Let's say we need 250. But if half of those households, or almost half of those households, get battery cars, the population of cars on the road, 250 total, but 50 million battery cars. I mean, how will that not make a dent in gasoline consumption and diesel consumption? If we're, you know, we're talking cars and SUVs and, and pickup trucks when we talk 250 million vehicles. I mean, it's got to make a difference. How can it not? So that's another thing here at Yorktown both myself and some of my colleagues are, are really going to spend some time on that and we'll have more information on that. But I just want to get to where Mike and Jason have some particular expertise, and that is how are we going to connect the devices we rely on for communication, our iPhones, our laptops and whatnot? How are we going to connect with where the information is stored and manipulated and whatnot. And, you know, we know that that's one of the reasons you own Amazon because they're the leader. Amazon Web Services, one of the reasons you own Microsoft is because you have the Azure. One of the things that Google's making a big push on is to have, you know, what is cloud? Well, cloud is basically keeping your information on other people's servers. But how do you, how do you communicate or retrieve information, whether it's movies or communication with someone else or work-wise or, you know, away from work. And there's this logic that, that wire is the way to go. In other words, a Comcast or a Charter, I think both of which have about, I think if I'm right, around 
25 million customers, some range like that. And the 20, so they each combined have 50 million customers. And it's interesting. If you look at, I'm not as familiar with chart, but if you look at Comcast, which I own and have owned for a long time, you have 25 million customers, but your system of fiber or fiber plus coaxial cable passes another 25 million houses. So, I mean, it seems like a comfortable position because you have installed this wire. It's paid for. And, and maybe, you know, as more people want to have better communication, quicker, be able to, you know, communicate with each other or download entertainment or, or what have you, maybe some of those thousand you pass will sign up and that'll be, you know, fairly cheap, you know, way to add capability. But there is some other technology out there. I mean, you have SpaceX, one of Elon Musk's companies putting up these pods of hundreds and hundreds of satellites to provide internet communication. And then you have this big space. And with that, I just kind of get confused. I'm trying to learn that. So the remainder of our time here, because we are going to run at least another five minutes, I'm going to turn it back to Mike. Mike and Jason have done a fair amount of work here, and they do have a company to look at, which may not be investable. But with that, let's have Mike finish out the next five minutes on this issue, because frankly, it's a threat to the Comcast and, and charters of this world, and maybe an opportunity, but big emphasis on the maybe. So over to you, Mike. Okay. So what we're talking about is, I guess, broadly, probably labeled 5G. And everybody that's got a cell phone, we've all been through a few of these network generation evolutions. 4G LTE is what most people are on now. And some people are starting to get onto 5G. And we were on 2G networks many years ago. And each one of those networks, they're generally an order of magnitude faster. So our experience as, as consumers generally gets better. There's a lot of cost involved. The cost to roll out a new wireless network in the U.S. is estimated at somewhere around $100 billion. So it's no small feat. 5G is bringing a couple of new opportunities. So the, the speeds are much, much faster. The speeds you can get on your phone are pretty much the same as what you would get at your house. And the speeds vary by what part of the network bandwidth you're in and a whole bunch of different factors. But it starts to bring in this question of, do you need a dedicated wire connection to your house or does it, could it just be wireless? And that question is very hard to, to answer because the dynamics of a cable network are somewhat different than the dynamics of, of a wireless network. And if you look at the traditional ISPs, the T-Mobile, the Verizon, the AT&T, their wireless network costs are relatively high. And what I'm starting to learn is that their cost of those networks, actually the majority of their costs are due to maintaining the legacy infrastructure. And a lot of that legacy infrastructure is pr proprietary. So as you can imagine, with proprietary infrastructure, you're paying proprietary infrastructure prices. And that's just not efficient. Again, when it's a monopoly business and there's not a lot of competition, it doesn't really matter as much. But in the shift to 5G, there is a push toward moving to what's called Open RAN, which is Open Radio Access Network. So the concept is, is that it's all going to be 
interoperable. So if you buy an Ericsson piece of Ericsson machinery, it'll work with a piece of Nokia machinery. Um, it's a lofty goal and it's, it's not a lot of operators are doing it in the U.S. The only one that's truly doing it is Dish Network. In Japan, there's an operator called uh, Radican or Radican. So there's a few people doing this and the claim is that their CapEx and OpEx are going to be dramatically lower because the majority of the network is going to be run in the cloud. In the case of Dish Network, they'll be using the Amazon Web Services as their virtual cloud. So there's a lot of implications to that. It's, you know, you look at the cell tower site, they're, they're generally like mini network centers, right? A whole bunch of switches, a bunch of proprietary machinery. The dish tower site looks a lot different. There's like a refrigerator size rack with one or two units in there. The rest, everything, it really, it's, its role is to just push data into the, the Amazon-based network. So all this is to say is that there's an increasing demand for data and we're moving beyond a single device per person in the case of a phone to many devices. So whether it's your car, it's your watch, it's your laptop will have a 5G chip built into it. So there's a lot more things that'll be connected. So 5G kind of promises to be this next generation of a network. And then the question back to kind of Hunt's point is, does this provide a level of competition with the cable operators or is it a, you know, is it something that they could, they can live with? And I think the answer is it just depends. Uh, and, and it depends because it mostly depends on capacity. You think of a particular tower has, you know, zero to a hundred percent capacity. And if a thousand people all show up at the same time and try to use the data at the same time, it's going to clog the network and you're not going to get anything through. You'll have a horrible customer experience. The network operators don't want that. So what we're seeing with T-Mobile, who's one of the first to offer on a broad scale across the country, 5G at home internet, which I've tested before and actually have one, is they offer it selectively in areas where they must have extra capacity during the time of day that you would expect that they would not be that busy. So my, my theory on this is, is that at in the evenings in residential areas, most people are on their home Wi-Fi. And because of that, the cellular towers are actually relatively empty. Since your home internet gets used mostly in the evenings, they can selectively say, okay, we can have, you know, a hundred of these in on a particular tower. And I'm just pulling that number out of the air. I have no idea how they come to the conclusion as to how that on a particular tower, but there has got to be a number that works out so that they don't degrade service. The example that I want to give is that for me to get it, I could get it for my, for my house, but I can't get it for my office. And they're only three miles, five miles away, but clearly according to T-Mobile, the, I, actually they do offer it at, at the office, but they have a charge if you go over 300 gigabytes or something like that. So they're clearly actively managing the network and trying to optimize the dead space in their, in their tower time. We will on future Wednesdays, we have these threads now that we are going to follow and, and Mike's just been leading it through one. I personally think the Comcast and charters are going to in effect, 
provide this service. I mean, they have that installed base. And, and I think that what you're going to see is you're going to see them offering a lot of wireless in, in competition with Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile. But we'll, we'll get into that. We definitely are going to focus on batteries and we're going to, because we are not comfortable owning Chinese companies like C8 or owning shares in Chinese companies. We're going to focus on Tesla with regard to batteries. We may revert to something. We're not going to give up on, on chips. We're not, we haven't talked at all about software, about Microsoft and Snowflake and Salesforce. We're not going to give up, but we have all these themes and we're going to follow these themes. And what we're going to be looking for is companies that have a pretty assured 10-year life ahead of them or moat, say a 10-year moat ahead of them, and have gotten down because of the decline in stock market values, have gotten down so they're trading at 5% free cash yield. 5% free cash yield, where you're in a good enough position in terms of taking market share and whatnot, where you can increase your free cash flow 10% a year, that's a 15% return. A 15% return over five years doubles your money. Let's that's where we're where we're going to try to go. And with that, sorry to be late, and we'll see you all next Wednesday. In the meantime, everyone stay healthy. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.